Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I have something just earth-shattering to share with you, and that is this. Hard work, your hard work, your very hard work, your tried and true hard work, it doesn't always lead to success. Did you know that? Earlier this year, Smith College professor Rachel Simmons reported that there's significant research that shows that hard work does not always pay off. You should receive that news with a bit of a wink, but this is published information It turns out that we simply can't count on hard work always leading to success. And uh, furthermore, as Rachel Simmons uh, warns us, it turns out that it's dangerous if we think that our hard work will always lead to success. Uh, Isn't she helpful? She cites a University of Chicago professor, Lauren Berlant, who says that sometimes even though we work really hard, uh, success uh, doesn't follow. Now, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. This is real articles. It's Time Magazine uh, earlier this year. And the caution is that uh, we can't teach our children that if they simply work hard, 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 they are going to uh, get all the success they can imagine and all their wildest dreams will come true. Now, we know this, don't we? We know this. We don't need uh, researchers telling us this. But even though we know it, functionally... Experientially, sometimes in our deepest thoughts, we are tremendously surprised when our hard work doesn't generate great results, aren't we? And we cry and we bemoan when, that, uh, when those results are negative and we can't figure out uh, how that possibly happened. We work so hard. We work so sincerely. Well, there you have it. I mean... Uh, Rachel Simmons tells us that we're wrong in thinking that. Uh, But of course we know Paul has said over and over again in this letter that in God's eyes our hard work gets us nothing, gets us nowhere. Uh, Paul says uh, in uh, Romans chapter 4, if Abraham was justified by works, well, then of course he had something to boast about. But Abraham had nothing to boast about, nor do we. What this means is that uh, none of our efforts can save us, no matter how uh, godlike we may feel, no matter how hard we may try. Our hard work, our pure morals, our best intentions, our honest creativity, uh, whatever, it gets you nothing in the eyes of God. Paul is going to say uh, later on in Romans chapter 9, he says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, we know 
that Paul's not inventing some new doctrine if we have been uh, Christians for more than a week. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that God saves only by free grace and never by anything that a man or a woman brings to the table. This is the key, uh, is it not, to the power of the gospel that saves. The gospel says that we're loved apart from our works and apart from our morals and apart from our intentions. This is the astounding kindness of God in the gospel. Now, when we reject this kindness and we attempt to go it alone, when we uh, rely on anything and everything that is actually apart from his mercy, we, the Bible says, are hurling ourselves into eternal separation from him. The Bible's doctrine of hell teaches that there's nothing worse for your life than to reject God's kindness and mercy. To trust your own effort is dangerous in Christianity. To trust your own effort is to reject God's salvation. And to put it another way, to trust your own work is to reject the work of Christ on your behalf. And so, this is a hard doctrine in a way, beautiful to our ears, but we're the kind of people that we really believe in our heart of hearts, that if I just work, there ought to be certain results that I can count on. Well, it's the core of the gospel, and yet it's tremendously hard for us to believe and to walk in day by day. But what what we're going to find here in Romans 9 is that Paul actually is uh, taking us deeper into dangerous territory. The implications of the gospel in our day-to-day life, uh, Paul is going to drive uh, home to us by using as an example to the majority a certain minority in the life of the church in the congregations in Rome, there is, to be sure, a majority of Gentiles in the church. The Jews represent a minority. But there's a certain confidence that this minority has that they won't let go of. And Paul, he's going to attack that confidence of the minority in the church. This minority uh, believe that uh, their natural ancestry actually can save them. Their uh, descent from the people of God in the story of redemption saves them. They believe that being connected to that story of Israel throughout time is their ticket, that they don't need the kindness and the mercy of God in the same way that others do. They believe that being Israel is all that they need. And so Paul wants them, as well as uh, the others in the church, to know that the kindness of God uh, that's, that's given to them in the gospel is uh, not optional. That the kindness of God in the gospel is necessary for salvation. And that any rejection of this kindness will lead only to eternal separation from God. And so this is why Paul can say in verse 6 of Romans 9, which we'll look at next week, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. If not even those who have descended from Israel can count on salvation by virtue of that descent, if they can't count on that salvation, then why would you think that you can count on your salvation that would come by your works or your morals? or your intentions. 
what Paul's saying is that even if, if dissent isn't a ticket to salvation, well, to be sure, your works, morals, and intentions, well, neither are they a ticket to salvation. And what I want to do with this passage is I want to uh, flip it upside down. I'd like for us to begin uh, with, uh, with the end of the passage. I want to begin with verses 4 and 5, which is uh, Paul's uh, commendation of Israel, which is a blessing. And then I want to turn to verses 1 through 3 and find out uh, what it is about that blessing that can also be a curse. And so in some ways, we want to look at verses 4 and 5, and we want to see perhaps with the rose-colored glasses, but verses 1 through 3, the glasses are clearly off. And Paul tells that minority in the church what they can count on uh, based uh, only upon being an Israelite. So verses 4 and 5, we're going to notice uh, over the next couple of weeks that Paul seems to be dropping one word in his vocabulary thus far in Romans for another word. He seems to be dropping the regular use thus far of the word Jew, and he is replacing it with the word Israel or uh, Israelite. In the commentary by Douglas Moo on Romans, he says that the word uh, Jew uh, would uh, normally refer to a, a horizontally drawn contrast between Jew and Gentile. That's how uh, Paul expects his audience to understand that use of the word Jew. It's, uh, it's part of this contrast uh, between Jew and Gentile. But Paul, uh, Moo says, is no longer looking at Jews from the perspective of Gentiles and their relationship to the Gentiles. But Paul, rather, is looking at uh, the same body of people from the perspective of salvation history and in their relationship to God and his promise to them. Here's, here's what Mu means. Paul uses Israel uh, to really drive home in the minds of his audience that he's talking about these people's special relationship, not with the rest of the world, but with God. These people who call themselves Jews, uh, Paul actually wants to highlight uh, not their relationship with the rest of the world, but their relationship with God. And so in verse 4, he says, they are Israelites. The word Jew is absent. In the Bible, Israel is a title of honor, and this really sets the tone for all of Romans 9 through 11. He calls them Israel. The name that they were given by God himself in Genesis 32, not Jacob, but Israel. It's God's name for them. It's God uh, calling them uh, his own work, his own property. And so what Paul is doing by using the word uh, Israelite rather than the word Jew is he's actually elevating the naming God. In many ways, he's writing to a subset in the church of Rome who wants to boast about the things that they have having been descendant from uh, the Israelites and he's pulling them out of the equation. You are an Israelite. I'm calling you not the name you call yourself but the name that God has called you and the name that you would never call yourself if left to your own devices. Israel is God's own name for them. And then what Paul does here in verses 4 through 5 is he just lists one after another these uh, privileges or these advantages of being named Israel. He says in both verse 4 and 5, 
to them belong, or in Greek, it's literally they are. Uh, to them belong, he's just saying they are. And it, and it comes across these two verses as rapid-fire privileges that belong to Israel. Now, there's uh, eight of them. I think you can count them in different ways. There's eight of them, but I'm actually adding one more because what we're seeing in verses 4 and 5, we've actually seen a taste of before in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Because in Romans 3, verse 2, uh, what does Paul say a privilege of uh, an Israelite is? Well, he says that one of the privileges is that they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2, entrusted with the oracles of God. That's, that's a privilege, is it not, of being an Israelite? They receive the holy word of God both orally and, more importantly, uh, written by him through the Holy Spirit. We think of uh, Moses receiving tablets that were written by the fing- finger of God. And so uh, Paul here is listening eighth, but I'm just going to throw uh, a ninth one here at the beginning that comes from Romans 3.2. But uh, look at verses 4 and 5. Look at these privileges. He starts with the adoption. Uh, This is the privilege of having been uh, adopted as God's uh, firstborn. In fact, these are the very words that Moses offers to Pharaoh. Uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, these people are God's firstborn in Exodus chapter 4. And then he moves on, Paul does, from uh, adoption to the glory I think the best way to understand what Paul means when he says the glory is he means the very presence of God as God fills the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. His presence, his glory is with them. And Paul moves on and he says, uh, to them belong the covenants. Now, notice in verse 4 that in the ESV, the word covenants is plural, Uh, There are some manuscripts that would uh, uh, show that covenant is singular and not plural, but I think the plural is uh, the best understanding of what Paul is after. Uh, This uh, most certainly means not just the covenant uh, with Abraham, uh, but the restatement of that covenant with uh, Isaac and then uh, Jacob and then Moses and then all the way into Jeremiah 31, the the restatement in the new covenant. All of the affirmations and statements of God's uh, covenants, they belong to the Israelites. And again in verse 4, the the giving of the law. Now, in the Greek, this could be read as uh, the giving of the law, or it could also be read as the receiving of the law, strangely enough, or simply just the law. And very likely what Paul is doing is Paul is doing what he's been doing thus far. He is saturating himself in the first five books of the Old Testament, books of the Torah, books that would resonate particularly with uh, the body of uh, Jews in the Roman church. And so when Paul references the law, he is most likely referencing Deuteronomy 5 verse 8, uh, where Moses says to the people in his own sermon to the people, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you? They've received the very law of God, and here is a reference to the giving of that law, particularly at Mount Sinai. 
And still, having not even left uh, verse 4, uh, Paul says to them belong uh, the worship. The, the only other place that Paul uses this word worship is in Romans 12.1. And you can turn to 12.1, but I'll tell you right now, uh, the word that is used in the English in 12.1 is the word sacrifice. Uh, the, the word that Paul uses here in Romans 9.4 is, is a very earthy, visceral word. And it might actually be better to translate it as sacrifice. When Paul uses uh, this word in, uh, in 9.4, uh, the word temple isn't here. The NIV will include the word temple, but the word temple isn't here. But, but the, the motive is right that Paul's likely referring to the entire uh, system of sacrifice and worship before God, the, the entire system of worship that actually presents a picture of how guilt and unrighteousness is dealt with. It's sacrifice that's necessary. And so the worship and then also the promises, uh, multiple promises there in verse 4, uh, all the promises that were made uh, to Abraham in that, uh, in that great covenant, uh, the promise of a great name, the promise of children, the promise to be a blessing uh, to the nations, uh, the promise of a possession, uh, possession of uh, land. Uh, Paul is mixing no words here. It's not just one promise that an Israelite has been recipient of. It's a multitude the promises. And then finally we get to verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. Likely Paul is referring to Abraham and Isaac, both of whom are going to be mentioned later on in Romans chapter 9. And then finally we get in the very end of verse 5, to them belong phrases continue and end here at verse 5. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God Overall, this is the most important privilege. Of the eight privileges here, and then the one privilege that comes from Romans 3, uh, here is the greatest. And in many ways, here in verse 5, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall. In many ways, what Paul is doing here is he's being pretty tricky. Because he's restating a statement that he makes way back in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. He describes Jesus there as a descendant from David according to the flesh. And he seems to be invoking that very verse, Romans 1, 3, right here in verse 5. But Paul does something here that's very tricky. Back in Romans 1, verse 25... Paul is describing the kind of people that reject God. You know, in Romans 1, there are a number of things that those who have rejected God have done. Uh, And in 1 verse 25, he says, those who reject God actually exchange the truth about God for a lie. Do you remember that expression? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And furthermore, they worship and serve the creature rather than who? The creator. Romans 1, 25. They exchange the truth about God in their rejection of him for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's Romans 1, 25. Paul's quoting himself in, in Romans 9, verse 5. But he makes a, a slight change. You can look at it this afternoon, Romans 1, 25 and Romans 9, 5. 
But let me, let me uh, open before you the trickery. Here in verse 5, he's saying that, uh, that God who should be praised forever and ever is the same one who, ha- who is descended from Israel. God, the one who should be praised forever and ever, is the same one who is descended from Israel, Jesus himself. In Romans 1.25, he says that, uh, that we have rejected God and that we worship uh, the creature rather than the creator. And here he says it's not, it's not merely worshiping uh, the creator that has been rejected. It's the worship of Jesus himself who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Verse 5 is an astounding statement, not merely of the descent of Jesus, which has been stated before, but, but it's an astounding statement of the very divinity of Jesus. To worship the Creator is to worship Jesus Himself. And so these are the nine kindnesses of God in the gospel. The things that he has done for the people whom he has named. And we have this great list of privileges. Now, take the passage and flip it upside down. And let's go where we perhaps should have begun. Verses 1 through 3. Because in verses 4 and 5, Paul is actually describing the the great uh, blessedness of of being someone who is an Israelite, Paul's great commendation of Israel. But in verses 1 through 3, he seems to be describing a special despondency over Israel, a curse of Israel. Paul says in verse 2 of Romans 9, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. It's filled with emotion. And it's filled with sincere sorrow. And then he offers in verse 3 what uh, sounds much like a prayer. In fact, you'll see in some translations of verse 3 that the word prayer actually shows up. But the ESV says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were, a, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Listen to how distraught he is. That he would even speak this way. That he would uh, desire in any way at all to be accursed, eternally damned to be entirely cut off from Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, that he could even use that language in verse 3 is utterly striking. Why would he do this? Why would he speak this way? I want you to consider that what's happening uh, here in verse 3 is that Paul is speaking out of a narrative from thousands of years before in Exodus chapter 32. Paul always has the Old Testament bouncing around in his head. If you were to read Paul's letter and to mark those parts that are quotes from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament, you'd have to just highlight all the letters. Paul is absolutely quoting the story here of Exodus 32. All of these nine privileges have come to the people by the time we arrive in Exodus chapter 32. All of the privileges that Paul has uh, written here have come to pass by Exodus 32. And then something happens in that chapter. 
On the mountain, God tells Moses that the people uh, down below, at the base of the mountain, those people down there, my people, my firstborn, he's already called them his firstborn. God says to Moses that the people on the foothills below us have rejected my mercy. They are a stiff-necked people. They deserve nothing but uh, condemnation. And Moses, uh, there on the mountain, he begs God to turn from his burning anger, to relent from this disaster, and to remember his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Israel. And the Lord relents. And Moses, he descends from the mountain. And we know this scene as Moses comes down and he sees the wickedness that has been done by the people uh, worshiping the golden calf. The Levites were instructed to kill those uh, who sinned. Some 3,000 people die in Exodus chapter 32. Moses says, uh, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Paul's mind is right here in this scene. Moses, he sees the wickedness. He knows there's something about, the, the, uh, about God relenting from this disaster. But Moses knows that there's been some kind of uh, earthly recompense that has been practiced. Uh, Levites are killing 3,000 of their own people. And so there is a wickedness in the ranks, but there's also a, a wickedness unfolding from the wickedness. And Moses climbs Sinai again. And when he reaches the top, he says to God, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive them, forgive them. Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two. But if not. Do you remember what Moses says? To God on the holy hill. But if not... If you don't forgive them, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Please blot me out of your book that you've written. This is what Paul's quoting in verse 3 of Romans chapter 9. This is where he is living. And Paul is not suicidal. He's using himself as an example of Moses who believed that nothing could save those people but an atoning sacrifice of some great price. Moses knew that he couldn't atone for the sins of the people, but he knew very well that there was no animal on the face of the earth that could atone for their sins. So great is their wickedness. Moses knew that they needed more. And he offers himself, even though he knows that won't atone for them either. And without knowing it, God has used Moses' heartfelt wish to atone for the people with his life to foreshadow a man who can atone for the people's lives. And that man is Jesus. And Paul, he gets it. He understands this very well, that Moses is foreshadowing the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the only blood that can atone, greater than any animal. And Paul gets it. And he invokes that same image before the Jewish people in the Roman church. And as he invokes that same image before the the Jewish people in the Roman church, he's invoking that image before the Gentiles in the church as well. 
Only a perfect human sacrifice will atone for our sin. And do you know what Paul, do you know what he believes the problem is with his audience? You see, he wants them to know that the kindness of God is the, uh, in the gospel is necessary for salvation. But he also wants them to know that their rejection of this kindness will lead to eternal separation from the God of mercy. You know, some Jewish and some Gentile members of the Roman church have made three errors. And Paul wants them to see the gravity of their errors. The first error is this. You can, you can assess this perfectly without me. The first error that Paul sees that they have made Do you notice something that's similar about all of these nine privileges that Paul lists? Entrusted with the oracles of God, adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The first error that they've forgotten is that salvation is by grace. Because no one motivated God to do any of these things. All of these privileges are received in only one way. Grace. God's initiatory love and kindness and mercy. None of these things came by works. None of the privileges come to Israel by their work or their morals or their intentions. Nothing. From beginning to end, being an Israelite is nothing less than being a recipient of God's great kindness this is especially good news to the gentiles in the roman church wouldn't you say those who are in the church who feel as though they may be second class citizens or not even saved because they're not part of that people to be part of that people is nothing short of god's great grace nobody not even the israelite receives salvation by works nobody can make salvation happen at all salvation is all in all of grace And the Israelite man and the Israelite woman needs to be reminded of this because they've forgotten that. Salvation is a product of God's kindness and mercy, not of works. And as Paul reminds the Israelite, he's reminding the Gentiles in the church as well. So that's the first first error, that they've actually forgotten God's grace. The second error is this is that they have forgotten that all of these things that they possess are unshakable because of God's grace. That having received uh, any of these adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, etc., to have received any of them is purely by grace, but they're unshakable by God's grace. They've forgotten that to possess any of these things depends entirely on that same grace that gave them in the first place. They've forgotten about God's grace, and they've forgotten that they are dependent upon God's unshakable love and kindness. And then there's a third error, the biggest of all. The third error is that they have failed to see that all of these privileges of God, the unshakable quality of his character, comes to them only by the one begotten one, Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the word of God. 
He is the one through whom adoption happens. He is God's glorious presence incarnate. He is the satisfaction and seal of every covenant. He is the personification of all law-keeping. He is the object of all worship. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the one of the, that the patriarchs anticipate. He is the rightful king of David. He is the Messiah who is God over all. You see what Paul is doing with all of God's variety of graces and kindnesses. And with the bearer of all of these kindnesses made known in the work of his anointed one on the cross, who would possibly reject him? Who would reject him? And Paul, as he's writing this letter, knows that there are many in the congregation who are coming to be a part of that church, who are there when the letter of Romans is being read, who've not taken uh, uh, with seriousness God's great mercy and kindness, and they continue to live their lives as if they have offered something for which God must praise them for. And they're there. They're in the church. They must be. He's writing this letter. They hear the words of the letter. There are people in the church who need to be reminded of God's great grace, who need to be reminded of God's unshakable character in which his grace will never be removed and need to be reminded that Jesus Christ himself is the culmination and fulfillment and the picture of that grace. But there are people in the church who've forgotten. And Paul makes himself an atoning sacrifice visually before them with the hopes that they might see the true sacrifice, the only sacrifice. Because the kindness of God in the gospel is utterly necessary for salvation. And that it is the rejection of this kindness that leads a person to eternal separation from God and his mercy. This Christian is your Christ. This Christian is what you ought to never forget. The privileges come by grace. They're unshakable because of his character and manifested in the work of Jesus on the cross for you and your salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the way that you have saved us, though it is beyond us. Why would you save us in this way? Father in heaven, we pray that you would train our hearts in such a way that we would always remember that we are a people saved by grace, that we would always remember that in your character that grace will never be withdrawn from us, and that we would always remember that that grace is founded upon the perfect work of Jesus once and for all, in whose name we pray, amen.